Tonight's reading is from John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you will love one another. This is the reading of God's word. This past uh, Friday and and Saturday, um, I had a really hard time getting out of bed. Um, I don't know if you've had days like that. Um, I do. My, my soul was in really rough shape. Um, I struggle a lot with doubt, um, with unbelief. You know, it feels like the longer that I'm a Christian, and the more saturated in his word that I am, the more entrenched in the rhythms of this world that I am, the crazier I realize the claims of Christianity. You know, we believe that there is one God who's not just like out there, but who has come into this world as a person, who's taken on human flesh, who lived in a no-name city called Nazareth 2,000 years ago, who was a carpenter. I bet carpenters are people that you look down on today. Nobody here into you is going to get a degree in carpentry. But he was a carpenter. And then for 30 years, he stayed under the shadows and then began his public ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, forgiving sins, and teaching and showing the world that he was God and that his kingdom had come and it has no end. And that kingdom began, unlike the Assyrian kingdom and the Babylonian kingdom and the Greek kingdom and the Roman kingdom that preceded him. His kingdom began not with force and might and strength. It began by his public humiliating execution on a tree where he was nailed naked. It's what the Romans did to those who were less than human. His kingdom began through his blood And we Christians believe that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, there on that tree, declared to the world that he was king. He declared the victory in hell for three days, 
going to the rulers and principalities of that world, telling him that he holds the victory. And he was raised from hell. He was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. And he appeared after his resurrection to women and to men, to his disciples and to 500 more, before ascending back to heaven to be with his Father. And right now it says that he's preparing a place for us. And that he will come again with judgment, with mercy and with justice to make everything that's sad untrue. And we will see our king and those his people, his sheep, will be gathered in his love and will live with him in his kingdom forever. And those who have denied him on earth will be damned. That's the gospel message. And it's about a man named Jesus. And I believe that this Jesus is actively engaged in the world today and he's actively engaged in my life. That he's interested, that he's in love, that he's invested in me. And some days I believe that. Some days I believe everything I just said. Some days I experience his love and his nearness. I believe that he's at work in the world renewing it. But some days... In some weeks and some months, I don't. Now, this past Friday and this past Saturday were, were some of those days. There's a man named Frederick Buchner, and he, descri- he describes the gospel as this. He says, the gospel is a great fairy tale that happens to be true. The fairy tale has pain and danger. Goodness is pitted against evil. People are transformed, and in the end, all the characters are revealed for who they really are. And to live within this fairy tale, to experience the joy and beauty and holiness beyond the walls of this world, Christians should get up every morning, read the news, and ask themselves, can I believe it all again today? And if you say yes 10 out of 10 days, then you probably don't know what believing means. But on the days you say yes, it should be a yes that's choked with confession and tears and great laughter. So why do I say all that? Um, because I don't know if you notice, but there are all sorts of people walking away from the faith. Um, I've seen old, I've seen young, I've seen men, I've seen women, I've seen rich, I've seen poor, I've seen longtime saints, I've seen brand new believers, I've seen friends, I've seen family walk away from Jesus. And I don't want you to walk away. And I don't know if you caught it, but the word that is repetitive and is used 11 times in these few verses is the word abide. And the word abide means to stay, to remain. Jesus wants you to remain. He wants you to remain with him. Why? Well, in verse 11, it says, because he wants our joy. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So tonight I'm going to talk about how can you be sure that in 10 years or 60 years you are abiding in Christ and you're a Christian. How, how, how can you be sure? So we're going to talk three points. You abide even in your suffering. Point two, you abide in your obedience. And point three, you abide through your love. All right? How do you remain? You abide even in your suffering. Um, last year we went on a, a ski trip. Another plug. Every year we go skiing. We go to Winter Park, Colorado, and it's a wonderful time. 
um, and we have a few uh, sessions in the evenings. And last year we talked about faith, hope, and love. And I was tasked to preach on faith. And I don't remember everything that I said. If you were there, you might remember some of this. But in, in, the, in the middle of my sermon, I remember looking at a room full of people, most of whom I didn't know. And I said, y'all are confused. You think the purpose of your life is to have fun and to be excited. And you know, our phones have tricked us into believing and seeking this sort of dopamine rush. It's just one hit after another. We just got to have fun. We just got to be happy. We just have to put a, a smile on our face. It's the purpose. It's why we're here. And I said, but spoiler alert. After college, life's getting harder. And it can be kind of boring and mundane. And I went on to tell them how faith is holding on to God's promises in the good, but even in the bad, in the boring, in the mundane. And how faith is believing that God's doing something in your life even when you can't see it or feel it. Okay, so that happened last year. So fast forward to a few months ago, the end of July, I was talking with my friend, the, the minister at University of Arkansas, and he was like, hey man, you remember that talk on faith? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, I had this girl who came. She had never really been a part of RUF. We talked her into coming to the ski trip, and she didn't show up for multiple weeks after, after that conference. So I reached out to her, and I asked where she went. And she said, well, I'm never coming back to that group. And he said, why? He said, because I don't want to hear what that guy has to say anymore. You believe what he said? If you believe what he said, I don't want to be a part of your group. Um, that's, how, that's, how I, that's how I minister. I um, show people out the door. Um, and here, here's the thing. Um, none of us want to hear that. None of us want to hear that. You know, but it's precisely the point that Jesus is making here. These are his final words to his closest disciples He's telling them that life is going to be hard. And there's just a few verses later, he says in chapter 16, why do I say these things? To keep you from falling away. And then he goes on to tell them about the suffering that they're going to endure. So abide, remain, don't fall away. He wants them to know that life's going to be hard, but stay the course. Endure in your faith. Life is full of suffering. You have to abide in me and my love. My Father's doing something in your heart and in your life that you may find joy even in the midst of really cruddy circumstances. You know, if we look back to our text, it says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Skip ahead, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Um, So as I studied this passage, I learned how a vineyard works. I don't know if if you knew what a vine was. When I imagined a vine, I imagined like an ivy, super skinny, that kind of dangled around trees and different branches. That's not what a vine is. Um, Here's a picture of a vineyard. Vineyard, a a vine is uh, a big root, a big, I'm sorry, not a root, a big branch, like a, like a tree that goes sideways and it's held up by these different stakes. And from this tree stump that's going sideways come these different branches. 
And um, what happens is there's, there's no technology yet that's been created for anyone to cut the branches that aren't bearing fruit. So a vineyard worker, a vine dresser, has to go through the vineyard and by hand has to get his hands dirty and go and cut all the branches that aren't bearing fruit for a few reasons. One, so that they don't steal the nutrients that the other branches need and also so that they don't steal the sunlight through their leaves in the shade and they don't bring shade to the branches that are bearing fruit. But here's the thing that our passage also says is that the father also prunes, trims down the branches that do bear fruit. And so at the end of every vineyard season, at the end of every season around November, the, vine, the, vin, the, the vineyard, the vine dresser, the vine dresser, also has to trim down the branches that have been bearing fruit. Because what happens is if the, the branch grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it gets further away from the vine, the resources and the minerals have to travel further and further through the branch and it eventually gets so far away from the vine that the resources don't arrive and the branch start, stops bearing fruit. And so for the branches that do bear fruit, every November, the vine dresser comes and he cuts those branches, and that's called pruning. And so here Jesus says, for every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. That it may remain close to the vine. That it may remain close to the love of Christ. Because that's what we need. I think that shifts our perspective of suffering as we're ones who suffer. You know, what if the dry season that you're experiencing right now is the November pruning that God and his love is doing to you that you may bear more fruit? You know, what this teaches us is that we serve a loving father who gets his hands dirty and by his spirit, so, sometimes he cares so much about his, his branches Sometimes, the suffering we experience, the dryness and the distance we feel, the days we can't get out of bed, the sin that we are overwhelmed by, the harassment you feel from the evil one, the doubt and self-hatred swirling through your head, the grief you live with, the darkness you experience, sometimes, that's the grace of our Father pruning you so that you may bear more fruit. The Father wants you to endure in the faith, so hang on. Jesus tells us, I tell you these things so that you may not fall away. You know, it's a common belief that our growth in Christ is, essentially, it, it, it pins down to just self-willed discipline. Like the more that we mature, the more independent we become and the less in need of grace we are. But this flips that on its head, right? This actually says that being pruned back to the source of life through repentance and faith, through death and resurrection, through suffering and endurance, being pruned back to the source of, of life is, is where we need to be. It's what maturity looks like, always being in a state of dependence, abiding in the grace of Christ, never outrunning our need for the nourishment of the vine. So abide. Even in your suffering, even in the desert, abide. 
It may be that the Father, by His grace, is pruning you that you may bear more fruit. And before we jump to point two, I just need to reiterate the warning that Jesus gives here. Jesus reminds us that judgment is real. That if you don't abide, that if you don't remain, you will be thrown away like a branch and wither, and you will be gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. You know, the Bible has a way, Jesus in particular has a way of not really messing around with his choice of imagery, does he? You know, talking about hell is not a very popular subject. I'm afraid I don't talk about it enough. But the Bible talks a lot about hell. You know, the New Testament gives, a lot of, gives us a lot of warnings about walking away. And some of the way that they implore you not to walk away is by, is by showing you and demonstrating and articulating the reality of walking away and where that leads. It leads to hell. For example, in Hebrews 10... This is what the the pastor, this is what the preacher says. For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume you. So how do you remain? How do you not remain? I mean, how do you not remain? You do nothing. You pursue the idols of the world and the desires of your flesh. You want to know a surefire way to not be a Christian in five years? Do nothing. Don't pray, don't obey, don't read, don't go to church, don't talk about your faith, don't repent, don't try again after failure, don't let your friends know about your real life, stay hidden, always let your circumstances determine your mood, let your experiences determine what's true. Do nothing, and you will surely walk away. You will wither on the ground, and you will be thrown into the fire. You know, the Bible is full of warnings, and we need to pay attention. Um, I heard a, a, a pastor, he asked, he says, Is being afraid of hell a good motivation to come to Christ? He says, Absolutely. And when you come to him, you'll always get more than relief from your fear. But you'll never get less than that. You'll always get more than relief if you come to Christ because you're scared of hell. But you'll never get less than that. Abide in your suffering. Don't walk away. That's the first point. Second, abide in your obedience. And next week we're going to spend a whole week talking about obedience. And then we are going to pick back up in part two of the Holy Spirit. Um, And also in our small groups this semester, we're talking about the Ten Commandments um, and how they point us to Christ and how they guide us into the truth of life. But the Bible, and in particular this passage, makes it clear that you you can obey the commands and not be in Christ. You cannot, but you cannot be in the vine and obey the commands. Case in point, the Pharisees. They tried to obey the commands to a T, and they were not in the vine. But this passage makes it clear that you cannot be in Christ and not obey the commands. All branches that are in the vine bear fruit, and fruit is born through obedience by the Spirit. 
You can obey the commands and not be in the, in the vine, but you cannot be in the vine and not obey. You know, Jesus says here in verse 10 and 14 that if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. And he says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. you know, a few verses that we skipped over at the end of, of, the, of chapter 14 say, say this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my words or commands. My Father will love him. Um, And maybe you've grown up in the church and you're like, whoa, Jesus. Settle the heck down. Um, Why are you being such a legalist right now? And that's actually a really good impulse in you. Um, you know, I think you respond like that because you understand that obedience doesn't earn you anything. You know, that's part of what it means to, to, to be in the Reformed tradition. That it's all grace. It's all faith. It's all about Jesus. We understand that the gospel message is contrary to earning. But the gospel message is not contrary to obeying. In fact, the gospel assumes obedience. Those in the vine obey. You know, I love, John has written a lot in in the New Testament. One of the books that he wrote is the book of Revelation. And there's this majestic scene where there's the dragon, the devil, who's coming after the woman, Mary, or maybe Israel, we don't know. And Mary has has a son, Jesus. And the dragon can't get Mary, or Israel, and the son. And so he comes after the offspring. And who are the offspring? Christians. And how are Christians described? As those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's assumed. The gospel assumes obedience. John picks the same theme up. I and mean, he must have been so moved by this teaching here in John 15. It ignited his ministry. It ignited his writing. In 1 John 5, it says, By this we know that we love the, the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So what does it mean to obey his commandments? Um, well, it means a lot of things, actually, which is why we're going to spend a whole week talking about it next week. But I want to harp on one thing here. Um, there's a commentator that I read that says, so what are the commandments? And I know right now you're like, goodness gracious, man, like, give me a little relief. Um, just hang in there. It's hanging there. What you feel is good. Um, if you're feeling something that, you know, maybe I should say that. Um, one of the points I'm going to make next week is, is I've given this illustration a lot, and it's um, if I were to pinch a dead man, he doesn't feel it, does he? Because he's dead. Um, but if I were to pinch someone who's alive, you'd feel it, and you wouldn't like it. And so right now, if you're like, man, gosh, I'm like examining my own life, I'm realizing I'm not an obedient person. It's probably the, the spirit pinching you and you don't like it. It actually shows me that you're alive. That's good. So what does it mean to obey? What's it mean to obey the commands? One commentator I read said this. So what are the commands? Well, more is at stake than Jesus' ethical commands. So think Sermon on the Mount. Okay? What the one who loves Jesus will observe is not simply an array of discrete ethics and imperatives, but the entire revelation from the Father revealed to us in Christ by the Spirit. So what the heck does that mean? It means to obey 
the commands in one sense is to hold to the testimony of Jesus. I mean, that's explicit. 1 John 3, this is his commandment, that we believe, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Let me show you one other place where this is the case. In John 15, 10, in our text, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. This is the same exact language that John then picks up in his letter. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In other words, to obey his commandments is to confess that he is God. Confessing, believing, faith is obeying the commandments. Okay, Caleb, well, what does that mean? It's a good question, Caleb. Thanks. I keep having a conversation with myself. Um, obeying the commandments is seeing and believing and living in the story of God. It's reading the news, as that quote said, and believing in that moment there's got to be something better than this. And it's coming. And in that moment, it's, it's believing that it's coming, that God's at work redeeming this place. The news is not my hope. It's believing in that moment where you're not invited to a friend's apartment. That instead of believing and, and, and just being so irritated and angry and thinking that you're a piece of crap and nobody wants you, it's instead believing that people are sinners and selfish and so am I. But God loves me and he sees me and has great plans for my life. It's stepping into the story of God. It's believing in those moments when you're bombarded with voices of shame after divulging into porn for the thousandth time. And in that moment, believing I'm worthy of a life that's better than this. I'm broken, but I will not despair. God is faithful and he's providing me a way out of this. God loves sinners of whom I am the most. Show mercy on me. Restore to me the hope of redemption. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know, abiding in Christ in our obedience is living in his story. It's remembering that we're created good, that we've been marred and broken, that we are sinners and sufferers living in a dark world, singing songs of lament. But those songs always end up with hope because we believe God is redeeming and renewing this world and will one day return and make everything new. Let that story Step out of the, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed, I have a test tomorrow. Step out of, man, what is God doing in this world and how is he using my test tomorrow to prepare me for it and to shape me for it? What is he doing in my heart as I step into that library? What is he doing? It's obeying his commands is holding the testimony and the story of God. We'll... we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Third, abiding in, abiding through our love. How do we remain through our love? You know, you're probably wondering, what about verse 12? You're right. This is my commandment, which is why I said that it means a lot of things. And one of the things that it means is this. In verse 12, it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has known than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then picking up in verse 17, these things I command you, that you will love one another. You know, John picks this theme up again all throughout his letters. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. 
He says in 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Um, There's a man named Francis Schaeffer who started an apologetics group, really, sitting down for a drink in the, in the Alps. It's a cool, it's a cool job. Um, about 70 years ago, in a place called Labrie, and there was a place full of atheists and agnostics who were skiing, and he'd welcome them and show hospitality to them, and eventually it turned into him teaching a lot. And this man could defend the, the truth of God with the best of them. If I wanted anyone in my corner to talk to an atheist and tell them why we have all the reason in the world to believe in Christ, he could do it. I'd want him. And here's what he says. He says, we must never forget that the final apologetic, apologetic meaning reason or defense, a reason to believe in the evidence and the existence of Christ. We must never forget that the final apologetic, which, which Jesus gave us, is the observable love of Christians. He did not say that our final apologetic is having the most clearly articulated set of truths. He said our final apologetic is having a deep love for one another. You know, I want you to think about the visual of, of fruit hanging off of a tree. Um, you know, Jesus says multiple times that, that you did not choose me in verse 16, but I chose you and appointed you to do what? Go and bear fruit. By this, my Father's glorified. How? That you bear much fruit. So what's the purpose of our life and discipleship to Christ? It's bearing fruit. What pleases and glorifies our Father? It's bearing fruit. So I want you to imagine a vine, the fruit's dangling off. Who is the fruit for? Is the fruit for the vine? No. Is the fruit for a branch? No. Who's the fruit for? It's for other people to come and enjoy. So I just want to do some like one plus one is two. Jesus wants your joy. Jesus wants you to bear fruit, which is a way of living for others. Therefore, two, joy comes from living for others. You know, the world tells you that life is about living for yourself. And it disciples you to obey that truth, which is actually a lie. You know, we're going to talk more about that at fall conference as well. And the world tells you that life is about pursuing your desires, your pleasures, your dreams, your loves, your career, your success, your beauty, your fame, your everything. Life's all about you. And it lies to you telling that you can, that it lies to you saying that when you pursue those things, it'll be satisfying. But what's true? Your life and my life, the life of the Christian, is all about other people. It's all about bearing the fruit of love. That's where our joy is found. We remain in Christ as we live for other people, which is precisely the gospel message of Christ's perfect love for us, isn't it? I remember meeting with my counselor one day. I was so frustrated with my kids. Like, they're making my life so hard. Come on, kids, like, why don't you obey? Why don't you just eat dinner with us? Like, why are you screaming and throwing your food on the ground? He said, Caleb, you know, you're in Christ, and you know that in your sanctification, you're being formed in the image of Christ through suffering. You know that the Spirit is creating Christ in you, right? So therefore, he's creating in you a man 
who in your dying moments will be spit on and mocked at, and in return, you will love. That's the sort of person he's creating in you. He's doing it with your kids. (laughs) He's creating in you, Christian, the sort of person who in your last days will be spit on and mocked. And instead of hating, instead of hating, instead of gossiping, instead of fleeing, in return you love. That's what he's doing in you. He's making you a more loving person for others. Love is, is contrary to belief, popular belief. Love is not using somebody and liking another person because they make you feel better. They make you feel happy. If you were to ask the, the world, our society today, what's love? It's really that. Maybe they wouldn't define it like that. It's using somebody and liking them because they make you feel happy. They make you feel warm and fuzzy. That's not love. It's not, that's not love. Love is giving yourself for the good of somebody else. Love is dying to yourself so that someone else may live. And Jesus says, when we do that, when we bear that sort of fruit, the, the joy of God will be full in us. And we'll remain. And this is the very thing that Christ came to do, right? Like, do we need a clearer example of what love is in the very person and ministry of Jesus? Who had everything, was totally self-sufficient, needed nothing, but out of an overflow of love with Father and Spirit, he poured out that love and created us that we might receive it. And that we might be brought into that love. And he had everything in the world and he emptied himself and he took on a, a human form. And he became obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that you may live. And that you may have joy. And that you may be with him and abide with him forever. So I want you to abide with Christ in your suffering. It's God pruning you. I want you to abide with Christ, not just in your suffering, but in your obedience, in your day-to-day life. And I want you to abide with Christ in your love and pouring out for others. How will you know that you're going to be a Christian in 60 years? You abide, you remain in those three ways. That's what this passage teaches. Um, Let me pray and we'll sing a final song. Um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are... Um, a great and majestic God, yet you are humble. And you, Jesus, you came and you humiliated yourself. You became a nobody. You grew up in a no-name town. You died the death of criminals out of love so that we may live, so that we might actually find the very thing that, that we're searching for. And that we might experience you. Lord, I pray for those who are weary and downcast. I pray for those who are giving up. Would you help them by your spirit remain? Help them not give up. Help them see your goodness and your beauty and your love. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Hey, let's stand and sing a final song.